Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, the brilliant Baratunde Thurston, one of our most interesting minds when it comes to issues of today, whether it's the intersection of self and tech or the promise and pitfalls of AI. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. There's a thin line between feeling enhanced and improved versus feeling disconnected from my own self. Did I have a good night's sleep? I think so. My ring says no. Who do I believe? Did I get enough steps? Well, how does, do I even know what enough steps feels like? Or do I only know what it looks like on a screen? Do I only feel the reward of healthy diet or eating because of the literal virtual trophies that I get from the smart device nudging me toward allegedly positive outcomes. If I'm not in touch enough with my body to feel those outcomes, am I experiencing them at all? Or am I just on this gamified treadmill in a monetized system (laughs) where someone else is getting a very tangible reward in terms of financial compensation or remuneration? So the, the way that AI can give us capabilities and insights while skipping all the steps required to gain or experience them is a deeply existential concern I have about where all tech is going and where this version of tech as kind of the tip of the spear right now is going. So says Baratunde Thurston, a true multi-hyphenate whose journey has taken him from stand-up comedy stages to the heart of political and social activism. He's the author of the critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black, an Emmy-nominated host and executive producer of the PBS television series America Outdoors, and the creator and host of the podcast How to Citizen. 
His mission? Tell a better story of us, challenging the status quo and fostering meaningful conversations about the intersections of race, technology, democracy, and climate. The stories we have inherited are too small for us, he tells us, urging us to nurture stories that are bigger, bolder, and better. Our conversation today touches on the concept of citizening as a verb, as Baratunde suggests that we are capable of more than we have been asked to do and gives us the steps to better citizen. We discuss the great potential and great concerns surrounding AI and the fine line between enhancement and disconnection through mechanization. We can heal people, landscapes, even society as a whole, he tells us, but technology alone will not get us there. We must tap into something that we have known but chosen to forget, how to live. Thank you for being here, and I'm thrilled to talk to you and know you because you have a fascinating mind, and I <laughs> always you. enjoy anyone who can talk about anything, truly. <laughs> There's also a name for us. <laughs> BS artists might be one of them, too. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean I have a fascinating mind. Could just mean I'm full of nonsense, but we'll find out. We'll find out. I read very widely as well, although yeah. I find as I age that my interests narrow how does your mind work? Are you encyclopedic? I think that my mind is like a relational database. I mm -hmm. absorb and retain lots of information. My wife might challenge that statement, but she's not here. And my mind likes to make connections between things. And that's been useful in a decade of stand-up comedy where I used to really focus my attention and, and brain and mouth. Uh, it's been useful in writing. It's been useful in trying to make sense of a chaos-filled world. And so things just with practice maybe or with disposition, probably both, my mind likes to draw dots between things and then use those dots newly connected to paint a picture of something that I might not have been able to see if I was just looking at the dots. And so I'm not yeah. a specialist on any particular set of dots. <laughs> I have certain areas of dots that I focus on, but the real way my mind is satisfied is by bridging dots. Is there a central animating question in your life? I sort of have a sense of what mine is, but yeah. what are you after? What is yours? <laughs> I mean, what's the purpose of life, obviously? No, I just, I really w like to try to understand, I want to understand the larger container that we live in. Mm. And I have become, I didn't grow up in a religious household, but I've become quite, I don't even know if spiritual is the word, like interested in mysticism and the metaphysical and the things that we are sort of on the tips of our understanding so yeah, I just I ultimately want to understand. I'm I'm always looking for the larger picture or the closet on which in which we all hang. Yeah, that's cool. What are Thanks. you What are you Thanks. after? I am trying to find slash tell a better story of us. Mm. I think the ones that we've inherited are too small for us, and they Agree. don't they don't fit most of us. And even the people they were designed for, they're ill-fitting for them too. 
And so we've got to find something else, something bigger, something bolder, something better. And that is where my story weaving comes into play to try to bring some strands from that larger textile closet together and contribute to, you know, a larger fabric of our concept of ourselves. And what do you think is so limiting? Is it that we live in these tiny snapshots amongst a much larger tapestry? Or where do you see us getting stuck or constrained by story? We have an emotional limitation biased toward fear rather than love in our story of us. We are limited by ideas of our separateness rather than our interconnectedness. And when we get fed fearful, disconnected stories, we become more fearful and disconnected. And you know, we are what we eat, including the stories we consume. There's some very tangible stories we've inherited that kind of play out some of those dramas of supremacy of one kind or another, male dominance, white supremacy dominance. Like these are all just stories. There's no scientific basis for them writ large. There are differences among all kinds of people and you can probably categorize them to some degree, but not to the degree we've codified them mm -hmm. and imposed them and use them to limit our collective potential. So shedding those harmful narratives, they, they're not the only ones out there, but they have, some of them have held sway for far too long. And I think it's yes. time to move on. Yeah, I just wrote a book. Oh, about... wow, congratulations. That's a big Thank deal, you. pause, pause, <laughs> at least wrote a, not just wrote a book. A lot of people write books. You published a book. Like your book is available for people it's who available. didn't write it. That is a bar that most writers never cross. So I just want to acknowledge you. Thank you. Yeah. It's about internalized misogyny it's mm. and internalized patriarchy and the stories that we've told about who we are. Yeah. And primarily through a Judeo-Christian patriarchal lens and how those stories have become distorted over time and that we don't necessarily subscribe to them. I mean, it's true of any systemic structure, right? You can say now that I think people like me have a sense of, oh, I now I understand systemic racism. I never quite understood it until I read things like Caste or Ibram. But now I see that I'm not necessarily choosing to participate in this system, but it's the culture that's whispered into my ear. Yeah. I'm part of it, whether I choose to be part of it or not. The book I wrote is about, in that vein, how, do we, how can we understand misogyny as something mm. that's just uh, culture rather yeah. than nature? Right. It's in the so, water. It's in the air. Yes, and exactly. So like you. Yeah. It. All right. And so then we are... We're in the same, What's yeah. Up? And the way the way the way Teammates. you just describe the way you just describe that too is like quite metaphysical or mystical to me, or that's my understanding of that. This like truer story, and who are we really? What are we doing here? Do you feel like there is? Have you been able to find that story, or do you think we're just creating it as we live and starting to shed what's been false? Yeah, I, we're probably always in a state of creation and destruction of story. But there, I at the same time, I think there are moments where we're in a plaque buildup kind of situation <laughs> and yeah. it becomes clearer to more 
that the old story doesn't work as well anymore. And so there's a seeking for something new. We are, we are in that moment right now. The, yeah. It's not so much that we need to create a whole new story. It's that we need to be sensitive to and aware of where that new story is already present and nurture that and, mm-hmm. and give our attention and thus our power to that. And, and by doing so, we make that story more real. It's, you know, Buckminster Fuller rules, right? You don't worry mm-hmm. about tearing down the system. You build a new system and you kind of attract people yeah. into that. And that's how you win. And it's, so it doesn't have to be destroying anything. It does yeah. involve letting some things go. And it might involve as well letting some things die and mourning that death and acknowledging that passing to make space for this you know, new life in this new story. So I, I see it in examples of how people politically organize. You know, I, I do this whole podcast, How to Citizen, and we're f- full of examples of folks around the world who are tackling climate with a level of savvy, sophistication, creativity, and joy that is not typically associated with climate activism. People who have relationships with money and business that don't make you feel dirty Actually, these tools are just different forms of energy. We can use them to harm or to heal, to sully or, or to clean. And so, you know, we have other ways of being with our elected officials. Maybe we don't have them. Maybe we do deliberative democracy and we conscript a random allotment of the public into service, compensate them for that time equip them with expert facilitation, inform them of all ranges of position on a topic, and trust them to come to a near consensus opinion or set of policies around whatever this topic is. Those are happening. There's yeah. a neighborhood in Brooklyn. You know, People are policing themselves in part with the blessing of the police. Let's try this out. So some places these things have taken hold very strongly. Some places they never left in terms of an indigenous sort of regenerative, circular, donut economic view of the world. And some, they're experimental and we're trying things out and and we should be experimenting. So I'm seeing all that. Yeah. Can you explain sort of, you touched on it briefly, but this idea of sort of little d democracy or the way that you see citizening, it's a hard word to say, happen from the inside out or like what that, that model is in the world. So there's a there's a story of what it means to be a citizen. And, and that story is predicated on birthplace, on location of parental intercourse, basically. Nothing to do with us. And 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 on legalisms and other stories of borders and separations that the land itself and the wildlife that lives on it have nothing to do with. They're like, "Okay, human, sure. Now you're in Idaho. Now you're in Oregon. Whatever, but we make it real." And we set up different customs and culture around these fake lines that somebody drew a long time ago. And we have distinctions. And they're often useful. But in terms of citizening and what that word can mean, what citizen can mean, basic premises in our new story of this that we're finding, citizen is a verb. And the way you express that verb, the way you act that out, is premised on at least four principles that that we came up with, we being Myself, my wife, Elizabeth, and our early guests who we were in public conversation with feeling out this topic. We knew, okay, it's citizen as a verb. That sounds good. What does that mean? That was my wife's major contribution early on. It's like, 
But what does that mean, though? So it means four things. Show up and participate. A world where to citizen is to assume you have something to do. And it doesn't mean you have to run everything, but it means you have to assume that there is something for you to be a part of. Invest in relationships with yourself, with others, and the planet around you. Understand power. Systems call people power. We have very few classes on power in our educational experience, but it's a big part of the ballgame, getting people to do what you want them to do. Doesn't have to be harmful, doesn't have to be dirty. It's very natural, but if we don't understand how to use that, we are shortchanging ourselves. And the fourth is to understand the value of, of the collective self, not just mm -hmm. the individual self. So that's kind of like the quick curriculum on the how to citizen thing. But if I go deeper and just kind of feel your question more, part of the animating motivation behind it is that we, I believe we're capable of more than we've been asked to do. And when we receive this image of our world, it is very dystopic, it is very divided, it is very depressing, and our options are limited. We can complain, of course. Everybody's got a microphone, and that is a mob-encouraged mentality. Who are you? I can't, I'm more disappointed in my politicians than you are. I win. Do I? <laughs> okay, great. We can vote for people, which is useful to a point, not sufficient. Mm -hmm. We can give money to people who text us a lot, telling us to vote for them. <laughs> we can shop. You know, we had a, a massive crisis of story and existence in our country with the attacks of September 11, 2001. And the headline call to action from our leading public figure was to shop. I remember that well. I write about that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Missed opportunity. You know, like we, mm -hmm. we are called to higher opportunities, but we need leaders to also trust that we're capable of answering that call. And to know how to make it themselves. And so small story, small story, small story all yeah. along the way. Let's expand. Let's rewrite. And, and, and let's reconceive of or redefine uh, a word like citizen to help us move through this transition in a, in a more positive, generative, and ideally loving and joyful way. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to FrameBridge to have them framed right. I've been having FrameBridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents 
treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do and they confirm this for me. But FrameBridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus FrameBridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why FrameBridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local FrameBridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. I know that so many people are excellent community organizers. I feel like people sort of hit one wall of resistance or there's like, I'd like to help. I don't know how. And then it sort of stops. So my hope too is that with ongoing organizing, the power of the internet, like we can create incredible relay races too and figure out, you know, you see this with like the WGA strike, but how, when can you participate and then you can go back to your life, then you come back and you push and then you go back. Cause I feel like also so many of us sort of run out, our rage runs out, our energy runs out. We just, but hopefully in time, that's one of the great promises of technology, right? Well, if, if, let me pause on some of what you just shared. You know, we go out, we come back to our lives. We go out, we come back to our lives. Mm-hmm. Our rage runs out. So rage is a fuel source in this telling. And it, it is powerful. It is really inefficient. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a sustainable fuel source, right? Love is a much more sustainable fuel source. So just within that metaphor and that language, we have some choices we can make. Yeah. The idea that I understood and still largely understand and I'm trying to shift for myself is, okay, I citizen out there, right? I politic, I, I small d democracy. <laughs> I'm just verbifying everything. But like that's where that happens out there. I go to a march. I write a member of powerful position. I boycott a business. <laughs> I, I write a letter to someone and then I come home. Yeah. And so even in that language, we've created a separation. And one of the the most beautiful moments that I learned from in the in the recent season of our show was to tear down that wall. Yeah. That that we citizen inside of ourselves. That that even we had the pillar right there, right? Invest in relationships with yourself, with others, with the planet around you. Those are concentric circles of increasing and escalating ideas of self. But it's blurry lines between all those things. Mm -hmm. And so with Adrienne Marie Brown, who was our first guest in this fourth season, she spoke of the power of fractals and patterns at large scale represented in a small scale and vice versa. And so the question can remain in the kind of indivisible resistance mode of current politics or the MAGA world of current politics. Pick your poison. Who am I going to yell at? (laughs) Whose office am I going to sit outside of? And those are very necessary actions. 
in concert with what do I need to learn? How do, how do I show up for myself? How do I have a clear enough relationship with myself that I know what I need right now is a healthy meal, a nap, contact with family, human eye contact, touch, breath. <laughs> and, and so if we start even at that micro level of citizening, the culture of misogyny or white supremacy or patriarchy, it, it emerges from inside of humans yeah, and, and the story that we project onto the world. So if we can shift our relationship even in here, then when we come home, we're still in it, but we're not fighting ourselves, right? It's not a rage for like, I got to be better. I'm such a bad activist. I'm such a, a bad citizen. Like that is, <laughs> you don't need to self-flagellate over this. You know, you're not naughty unless you right. want to be. And we could probably have a BDSM version of this if that works for you. <laughs> but I don't think that's for like the great swath of people. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's true. I just bank yourself into citizen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. It's a beautiful idea. I think that there's just yeah. such the, such a persistent idea of what this is supposed to look like. And yeah. and I think it comes down to sort of how we're each uniquely or innately gifted. And some people are better sort of behind a keyboard. Others are better in front of an audience. Others are, you know, more persuasive. One, Whatever it is, I think part yeah. of it, too, is like understanding who you are and how to use those gifts towards a better world and ideally creating new tools rather than just relying on sort of the way that we've been conditioned to outsource our sovereignty and outsource all of this to other people, which is functional, sure, but maybe not getting us where we would like to be. Yeah, as, as far and as, as joyfully as we could go. Yeah. Right. We, we'll still move, but it... it We'll work harder yeah. and enjoy it a lot less. So boo on that. Thumbs down. Boo. So what's fascinating to me is that you, so when we were emailing, the, the two worlds that you are between, right, are this yeah. sort of or where you seem to be most passionate right now is AI, the man-made sort of hyper-technical world and understanding our hyper-technological world understanding sort of how to match our progress there with our evolution. Because mm. I feel like we are way outpacing ourselves with progress, but no evolution. Yeah. Air quotes. Um, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. You saw my air quotes. Like there's no, we do not have the consciousness to manage what we're making potentially. Yeah. yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the people who are making it and sort of where they are collectively. I don't know that they're leading with love rather than fear, right? So you think about how these systems are made and programmed. That's where I get concerned. And then you have a PBS show about nature. So I love sort of the split, which I think we all feel acutely, Dot right? Connector. Like we're torn. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. I'm trying to bridge all those concepts of technology. The, yeah. the large, the generative large language model and the, and the regenerative mycelial networks and, yeah. you know, universality at the atomic scale of life. And I hope that we can find a way to recognize the power of both and wield them, you know, for our collective self-interest. 
Mm. There's those are not always the default settings in some of these systems, but we can recode them. Yeah. I'm trying to be optimistic. I try not to sort of buy into doomsday scenarios where humans are extinct because the world is run by machines right. at all. Where are you excited and where are you concerned? And we haven't really talked about AI much, so on yeah. this show at least. And I have my head not under a blanket about it by any means, but it's just not as... I am a writer. I like writing. So I'm not yeah. looking to sort of outsource myself. My, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's that, a no, little you're, you're strange You're tapping to into like one of the great annoyances of our time. And I, I, I cannot cite who first put this thought in this way into my head. I may have seen it on social media. I may have seen it on a sign at the writer's strike for the WGA writers for TV and film. But it was essentially like, you're taking the jobs we actually like. <laughs> you know? Like writing's fun. I like it. Yeah. Don't take like take away the laundry. Cool. Take away yes. the dishwashing. Yeah. Take away tax filing. Go for it. Yeah. But you know, when you find this like creative, passionate thing, what why would you want to automate and yeah. kind of and disconnect? AI art? Yeah. Yeah. So I get that. So, you know, excitement and concern for me, I haven't weighed them in the scales, but I have ample supplies of both. And, and I'll, I'll start with concern because it's probably most based on what you just said, closest to where you are. And then I'll see if maybe through sharing the excitement, I could even help you see that for yourself. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Yeah, good. I mean, I'm, I'm on the creative front. I am concerned about a narrowing of creativity because of the technical way these systems are built. So these generative large language models are trained on a large set of largely ripped off data. We call it data to kind of dehumanize the intellectual property associated and disconnected from kind of human spirit. So it's everything's just data. And then maybe data becomes information. And then maybe if we're lucky, information becomes knowledge. And then that funnel steepens where knowledge might become wisdom. But we're not dealing in the realm of wisdom here. We're dealing in the, in the realm of data, according to the worldview, the people who've, who've constructed these systems. And so we've hoovered up a vast minority of human experience and then proclaimed it to be capable of generating anything. So it's already a really steep funnel. It's like English language, documentable human experience, from recent history, largely in the West. <laughs> and that's going to make all the emails now. And that's going to make all the slideshows. And that's going to make all the, the Getty images, you know, the stock photos. And that's going to make the paintings. And that's going to make the songs. And that's going to make the TV shows. And that's going to make the poetry. And I mean, we have kind of just, we're, we're a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. Mm -hmm. We're inventing a new thin form of calculus here <laughs> that's reducing us. In the way that you reduce something in a stew, but not nearly as delicious because we're not so cognizant of those base ingredients because we're not allowed to know, which is also part of the design. So that concerns me. The mm -hmm. effect, the winnowing effect on creativity and the implicit large scale bias of the raw information that's put into these models to begin with. I have a laundry list of concerns, which I limited like three-ish. Second big concern 
that I have is about disconnection, disembodiment. I'm wearing a very smart ring device right now on one side of my body and a smart watch on the other. And there is a smart device constantly listening to me over here and another one over there. And then there's this one I'm talking to you on. So I'm an enhanced person, right? There's a thin line between feeling enhanced and improved versus feeling disconnected from my own self. Did I have a good night's sleep? I think so. My ring says no. Mm. Who do I believe? Did I get enough steps? Well, how does, do I even know what enough steps feels like? Or do I only know what it looks like on a screen? Do I only feel the reward of healthy diet or eating because of the literal virtual trophies that I get from the smart device nudging me toward allegedly positive outcomes? If I'm not in touch enough with my body to feel those outcomes, am I experiencing them at all? Or am I just on this gamified treadmill in a monetized system <laughs> where someone else is getting a very tangible reward in terms of financial compensation or remuneration? So the, the way that AI can give us capabilities and insights while skipping all the steps required to gain or experience them is a deeply existential concern I have about where all tech is going and where this version of tech as kind of the tip of the spear right now is going. And then the last thing I will name is the industrialization of self. You know, one of those core ingredients in what we're experiencing in generative AI right now is capitalism. And the competitive drive unleashing unfinished, untested tools on billions of people so that a handful of organizations can return outsized investment returns to already hyper wealthy people on a hyper economically stratified planet. Why? <laughs> you know, like that's just, it's a deeply limiting motivation for all of this. And I'm, I'm not a complete anti-market, anti-capitalist person, but I'm market skeptical mm -hmm. because the human experience in no way could it be fully satisfied by supply and demand. Right. You know, it's no. just like we are so yeah. much more than that. And we are, yeah. we need more than that and we're capable of more than that. So that's a limiting little story that's driving the engine that is allegedly going to write all of our stories for us. Yeah. And there's no regulation. I mean, we have no regulation yeah. on social media. And yeah. isn't sort of the AI body, aren't they saying that they're essentially a non-for-profit, but only after they return like 200x on the, it's yeah. like- God, In terms of open scheme. AI specifically, yeah. yes. Microsoft has no such limits, nor does Google. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I want to go to your 
where you're hopeful for, but first yeah. I just, we're the same person. I'm kidding. But when you're <laughs> listening to you, I wrote this piece for Oprah earlier this year about wholeness versus wellness and sort of the mm. way that we're outsourcing with the, the biohacking and the tracking and, you know, seeing people in LA walking around with their continuous glucose monitors and the instinct to mechanize ourselves or to yeah. treat ourselves like, yeah, robots effectively that should be optimized supply at chain every turn. To be optimized. Yeah. It's very yeah. concerning. And to that end, it's interesting because originally I would argue that the wellness movement was a push towards recognizing intuition, a woman's knowing, the mm. fact that we had been sort of silenced and ignored, and the basic tenets of health, whole foods, sleep, right. walking, name. breathing. And to see it co-opted, you know, I call it bro wellness, but this sort of... <laughs> it's good. I like that. But I, I, I have to wonder, and maybe you're going to get into this in the positives. In a way, I'm like, don't give me any of my data. This is not healthy for me. I don't even mm. own a scale. But I, I don't mind the idea, particularly in our healthcare strap society, that well-tuned sort of AI model could be assessing our data, looking for massive trends or concerning insights that then could yeah. be put into actionable advice. But I don't know that we know enough. I think the citizen scientist model, I'm like, we're not Peter Atia, most of us, nor should we be. That does not look joyful to me at all. I just want to live. Let me live, yeah. you know? Yeah. Anyway, please tell yeah, us, tell us why we should be excited. Because it's so early and we don't know yet, mm. the concerns of which I named a few, and there are so many more about copyright, intellectual property, misinformation, deep fakes, what even is truth? How do we trust yeah. anything we get through a screen? But if we unleashed chat GPT or something like it on the data set that is policing, mm. We would find patterns. We would explore differently. We would learn, still up to us to do. We'd have fewer excuses to not act on, at the most generous interpretation, the inefficiencies of our policing system. Yeah. <laughs> at the, the most uh, aggressive, the systemic, destructive abuse of power inherent in, in a racialized way, our policing system. I, I went to college with a man now known as Dr. Phil Goff. He was just Phil back then. And he's at Yale University now. He created something called the Center for Policing Equity. And data is a big part of his world. He's a psychological training background with neuroscience and, and some behavioral stuff thrown in because he's never satisfied. And what he and his team were able to do with just data science was really shedding powerful light on, on some brokenness in this particular system. Scale that up. Mm. Think, think about this tool in the hands of activists, you know, and, and all the things the activists you know, respect and love, care about. That, that makes me very excited. You know, yeah. There's some precedent for caution around that excitement, same with social media, right? But still possibility. My friend Ron, Ron J. Williams, has coined this phrase. He, he first called it radical comprehensibility. 
Then he's like escalated and calling it the bionic customer. There are businesses who get away with and profit literally from obscuring the facts of their business. Mm -hmm. They make money off of customers forgetting that the business is taking their money. How many subscriptions am I signed up for that I forgot about? How many weird fees and charges is some financial institution charging me? How many false things have I been charged for? I just don't have the time to challenge. That kind of profitability through obscurity is coming to an end because we will have AI agents who will make that call for us. Right. We already have tools like Truebill now, which can find those subscriptions and turn them off. And so you pair the insight with the power to execute on our behalf. And now I've got a call center of my own. Bring it. Let's go. I've got lawyers of my own. No more shitty terms of service. Nope. I see what you did there. And I say, no, thank you. And, and so that kind of arbitrage, that informational arbitrage between a business and a customer will narrow greatly. You know, we can already find deals and have transparency around pricing for airlines, but this goes way deeper into the operations of an organization potentially. And then, you know, I think about the upsides for the good things we want to see, like medical research and all the insights, radiological image screening, early alerts. You mentioned healthcare. I mean, every American has a tragic story involving health, usually involving the alleged system we have to care for our health. And within that funnel, usually around the insurance companies that are supposed to provide for the care in the systems that's supposed to offer us a, a sense of health. And so to have allies, you know, my mother died of colon cancer mm. and she was not listened to early in her experience. She didn't know that that's what it was. And she had two kids. We weren't physically there to be able to kind of be the lawyer you need to be yeah. to be a good patient. Right? Like to be a good healthcare patient in America, you got to be a great lawyer. Well, we just suck in some databases and now we got it. You know, I, I test unleashed chat GPT on my own healthcare policy, 180 page PDF. I'm not going to read that. And I can read really well and really quickly. And I have a degree to prove it. And I've written a book myself. And published it, like you at least. Other people have read the book I wrote. And I, I don't have time for all that. So no, that idea of being able to gain those insights and bring that, that power to bear on health individually, but also collectively on climate. I've been using this tool, Green GPT, which helps me identify all the subsidies and discounts and rebates that I might qualify for for various enhancements I make to my home at the city level, the state, the county. Again, any data that's obscure from a congressional bill to a terms of service for an app, just do a text processor on them. What does this mean? Explain this in plain English to me. Oh, that's what's in the bill. Yeah. So now none of these fools has any excuse to not know what they're voting for. And I will have receipts to show. So the ability to hold people to account, hold ourselves to account, Really fascinating. Yeah. Really, really interesting. And then, you know, low-hanging fruit, just I'm a sucker for getting rid of drudgery. Like, I don't like writing captions on my social media posts. And I like writing, but not that kind of writing. <laughs> you know? And so there's I'm playing with a tool 
that can just process the information in the video that I'm posting faster than me and can learn my voice from my emails, which I give it permission to do. And so for people to be able to, with consent, control, and compensation, opt into this world, create allies, balance power, increase accountability, deepen insight, and then maybe follow through on the promise of having more time because of this. Yeah. Then we need the wisdom. What are we going to do with all this time? Right. We're just going to work harder. We're just going to generate more bullshit. Right. (laughs) That's like been always the great promise. Are we actually going to spend time with our fans, friends? Yeah. Yeah, We'll mechanize all these tasks so that we can return to ourselves. And instead, there's just more of a cattle prod towards productivity. But so talk to us about nature. So did you grow up in nature? I, I did. I grew up here on Earth. Uh, very natural environment, atmosphere, oxygen, <laughs> photosynthesis benefiting me constantly. I'm a very natural being. I have my doubts about some other alleged humans, but I can I do to too. There are definitely aliens amongst us. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was born in 1977 to Arnold Robinson and Arnita Thurston, and the latter of whom really did the work of raising me, that being my mother. My father exited this realm pretty early in my life through gunfire. He was mm. he was killed when I was young. So my mom had the solo of responsibility slash great opportunity <laughs> of, of stewarding me into this world. And she was a tech person. You know, she wasn't born into that, but she hustled and figured things out and she became a computer programmer. And so one of the first things that she brought into the house for me and my sister to be able to access was a computer. Wow. And that partly explains why I'm so invested in technology. But the other, you know, she brought in knowledge and critical thinking and skepticism about American propaganda as well. And a sense of self-love as a black woman born in 1940 for whom that was in low supply based Mm -hmm. on the default settings of the society at the time and to this day. The other tangible tool my mom brought in the house was a bike. She, she gave me a bicycle when I was really young, and my mom loved the outdoors. And we would go on bike rides together. We would go on hikes. She was a Sierra Club member. She helped me enroll in the Boy Scout troop. It was this all-black, pan-African, like, Afrocentric Boy Scout troop. It was basically a, you call it a militia these days, but there were no weapons, <laughs> right? <laughs> we had our badges, you know what I mean? Like, language changes over time, at least. Language changes. So just like a bunch of little black dudes from the hood in D.C. going to a Boy Scout troop meetings in a church, but also going to the Masonic Temple down 16th Street, not far from where I grew up, and questioning them about the, the use of African imagery in all of their emblems and, and having them say, we don't know what you're talking about. This is not a fez. This is just the Mason's hat. I <laughs> like, know. Okay, buddy. We see you. That's cool. Uh- and but going camping, you know, I went camping with my me, my mom, and our dog. Saw the whole East Coast. Mm. I think by the time I was ten years old, wow. and and most of that through camping, and took a cross country trip on by train all around the U.S. and into Mexico, and visited the Grand Canyon and cut across Montana and all the northern states and went to the Mexican Copper Canyon, which is six times as big as the Grand Canyon, which is a fact I learned at age 12 because we went there. Mm. Little kid in the hood, having these kinds of experiences. And and she would take my friends and me out on the bike trails 
of DC, which is a really, really great place to be a kid. Outside of the murder and the crack and the blah, blah, it's a great place. It's the right scale. It's alphabetical and numerical, hard to get lost as long as you know which quadrant you're in. Pay attention to the Northwest Northeast designation. <laughs> and and lots of parks. You know, Rock Creek Park was so close to where I grew up that I would play there with my friends and go on bike rides with my older sister, Belinda. So that was as much a part of my ch- early childhood, my entire childhood, as was being on the computer, dial-up modems, early bulletin board systems, which became the internet. So I've, I've lived this duality yeah. my whole life. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. I grew up in Montana. So, oh, that yeah. whole state is outdoors. Yes, yeah. exactly. So that was my <laughs> childhood was living on a dirt road. It was amazing, but very, yeah. yeah, pretty, pretty isolated. I mean, I went to school and stuff like that, but right, clearly. Yeah, but I grew up very, 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 very much in nature with, you know, making my own fun by myself with my older brother, but like really. On the mountain, up the creek, in the cave. Yeah. It's wild now because my mom, I can't imagine my mom being comfortable with my little kids just doing what my brother and I did, you know? There are mountain mm-hmm. lions, but at the time we were really free. And so do you think, like when you think about the future and you think about this story that we're trying to sort of remake or unplug from and... and mm-hmm reweave and where we're going technologically. I'm assuming you're hopeful. You seem very hopeful. But what do you think? Like, do you feel like we're entering some sort of new era that we're about to make some sort of seismic leap forward or maybe we're in the middle of it? Or do you feel like we're just sort of still being torn apart? Yes. Yes? Yes to all of that. My hope is not boundless, and it is very tethered to Earth. And you know, Earth is reacting to us in increasingly dramatic ways that are less and less possible to ignore. You and I both live in Los Angeles, Southern California. Got an update yesterday, LA Times News Alert, all state no longer offering insurance in the state of California. Because mm. it's just too risky for the risk managers. Like their whole business is risk. And they're like, man, this is just this is too risky for us. All state, <laughs> right? This is a massive, well-known, generationally present company and brand. And they're like, yeah, we're just going to 
cut out on the sixth largest economy in the world. Too risky. So I accept that fact about mm -hmm. the world we live in and do not pretend otherwise to be the case, in its entirety at least. Part of where my head is at is how do we prepare ourselves for the predictably more challenging times that are ahead? How do we practically prepare for that? How do we psychologically and emotionally prepare for that? How do we decide what to do with the resource of time so that we just spend it well, however much we have, whatever the temperature is or however high the floodwaters are, we're still in space and time and we still have choice about what we're gonna do with our bodies and our minds in, in a moment and who we're gonna do it with. And, and so the citizen thing plays into that because it's like, oh, we, I think we need practice at being together mm -hmm. and, and using and generating and sharing power and disagreeing because there's a lot of disagreement on the horizon. And if we lean into the fear story and the division story, then we'll draw borders on top of our borders and we'll build walls on top of our walls and we'll heap blame on people who had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, poor people from the global south subject to our industrial excess for hundreds of years, now logically seeking refuge. And we will say they are bringing disease and death and destruction to us. <laughs> really? That story and that headline are very, very reversed mm -hmm. in, in the kindest possible way. So there's a, there's a reality check for me there. I'm, I'm not naive about what we're facing. I also allow for the possibility that if we get some of these base level pairings right, then the strands of DNA that make up our collective selves that emerge from that will not only be able to withstand better what's coming, but undo some of the harm we've done. Mm. You know, with America Outdoors, this PBS show, I was recently in Oregon. It was the most attuned experience of making this show I've had yet. Every single person we had on was echoing the same thing. There was this spearfishing guy and he's like, I spearfish because I want to be sustainable in how I gather my food. I only, I only want to take what I need. I don't want to take more. I don't want to use a net and catch a fish I don't need. Mm -hmm. I want to use a, a hook and line and catch a fish. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm going to see that fish with my own eyes and I'm going to take that one and no more. Mm. I met this, you know, roller derby champion, Mick Rose. They had been representing the U.S. in the in the World Cup of roller derby, but didn't feel represented by the U.S. Mm. Wasn't allowed to fly their own indigenous nations flag alongside the U.S. flag because the coach is like, I'm, "That ain't America. Get out of here with that." And instead, they bonded with other indigenous players, formed a thing called Team Indigenous, which is transnational team of many indigenous nations around the world who now compete together. And then Mick lives in Portland now and That's is amazing. creating this community garden on what used to be a baseball diamond. So the symbolism gets richer. And instead of the baseball diamond, it's now a medicine garden where they grow native plants, where they grow their own medicine, where the, the breadth of the garden they have has allowed them to bring back species of plants that people thought were extinct, mm. which has brought back species 
of bees and birds that people thought were extinct. They're using ancient technologies of water sequestration and carbon sequestration to reseed the land and kind of uncolonize, you know, decolonize mentally, physically, agriculturally. I saw that with my own eyes. I verified it. This isn't like some random article I came across that made me feel good about the possibilities. This is a human being whose hand I shook and whose herbs I touched. Mm. <laughs> and it's like, we can undo things. And it's not just going to be deploying laser beams and LLMs and AI robots that's going to get there. We have to tap into something that we have known but have chosen to forget, mm. which is how we live with all the life that's already here and how we see ourselves as a part of that network, not dominant over it. We need a new story there. So my hope lies in people like Mick and people like that spearfisher. And those are two teeny tiny examples out of now hundreds that I've borne witness to and been blessed to experience directly or indirectly through the podcast, through this TV show. And that's just the past three years of my life. I've got 42 more under my belt. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen some other stories play out. Yeah. I've seen alleged criminals restore to the community and become assets rather than liabilities. We can heal people. We can heal landscapes. We can heal ozone layers. And we can heal our collective society as well. So mm. that's what keeps me going. I don't always believe it. Sometimes I look at the news or hear some idiot speech and I'm like, oh man, these this is where we're at. But we're always at many places at once. And can I drop something funky on you? Yes, Elise? please. I know I've been on a kind of a long monologue. I sort of apologize. No, but I, I because of your you interest... Day. Yeah, because of your interest in the container, the closet, this, you know how we situate ourselves in the whole life thing. I'm gonna share this update on my understanding of the universe that happened just in the past month. I met an uh, astronomer. I have to take great pains to not call him an astrologer. I always slip on that, and he is not <laughs> gonna read my horoscope. But he will, through the un his understanding of the stars kind of tell a story of the future that's pretty inspiring. Energy doesn't dissipate. You know? It moves, but it doesn't die. And the Big Bang that happened 15.7 billion years ago, all that energy is still here. We are it. Like We are a version of it. We are an instance of that near-infinite force. And every atom that existed then exists now and some of those are us like we are riding this cosmic wave we're like surfers on a cosmic wave billions of years in the making and so my atoms were at the big bang mm -hmm. they're also in the future right their their time doesn't in this kind of math you can almost take time out of it it's just being yeah we just, we, we are, we are. And so if we can tap into maybe just symbolically, but maybe actually, I don't know, but certainly the value symbolically is enough for me to take the leap to say, the things we want to do, the things we aspire to, we are, mm -hmm. we can, we have. 
And there's something really powerful in that to me that's not like spiritual bypassing and like, oh, just manifesting one, but it's just like a deeper level of truth. We can interact with trees in ways that we're just starting to understand. Just starting. Our dogs freaking know where our hearts are. Like, so our atoms were at the freaking big, we are ancient. Yes. (laughs) We're just reconstellating ourselves again and again. Yeah. And we're already in the future. And I just kind of love that. Well, Baratunde really is a man of many interests and insights. I could talk to him for five hours, going into various parking lots. Like now I really want to just talk to him about Shriners and the Masonic Temple and what that means. If you're unfamiliar, he has a podcast called How to Citizen with really incredible guests exploring many of the same questions that I'm interested in as well. If you like today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at elisalunan. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.